We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, July 24th, 2023, as we bring you a new episode. Folks, I'm not going to lie to you. This is not going to be a happy episode. We knew this post-All-Star break road trip to Atlanta, Queens, and Minneapolis would be tough for the White Sox. Well, they started off by winning the series against the Braves, then lost two out of three against the Mets, and went ahead and got swept by the Minnesota Twins, which included two late-inning losses. The White Sox are 41-60. and They are now 12 games back of the American League Central. The season is over. But does Pedro Grafal understand that? Does anyone in the front office get that? And the microscope gets larger with a two-game home series against the crosstown rival Chicago Cubs this week. So let's get started. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And uh, Jim, like I mentioned, uh, this is not going to be a happy episode. Uh, Not a great weekend in Minneapolis. And we talked about this in the watch party on our playback channel at playback.tv slash SoxMachine. And I'm noticing it even more after Sunday's loss. The apathy is really growing amongst the White Sox fan base. Sure seems that way. I think, you know, coming out of the All-Star break, given that the Twins hadn't really put any distance uh, between them and the Guardians, and then, you know, the White Sox aren't that far behind for a fourth-place team, there was a sliver of a chance that they could maybe put a scare into them, especially with this series. Uh, the uh, last seven of the head-to-head matchups, so this is three, they have four remaining, so maybe they can put a dent in it with a good weekend, but instead, uh, a sweep. And not a pretty one, a you know, a couple of tough late losses, uh, three different relievers who are generally trustworthy over the course of the entire season collapsing, and having ill-timed blowups, like we, we talked about that, I think, in May, when just uh, the how all these close games required such precise sequencing and luck from whoever he threw out there, and just poor luck with 
Middleton and Santos and Graveman. And now it's, yeah, it's, you know, staring at the barrel of like a hundred and games in the can, 101, 60 left, some trades to come, some trades maybe not materializing with the way some guys are playing. That <laughs> just, uh, there really isn't a whole lot to look forward to the rest of the year. So let's zero in on Pedro Grafal because he said some things over the weekend because we have not heard from Rick Hahn and the White Sox front office in a long time. It is suspected that they may talk to the media before Tuesday night's game against the Chicago Cubs. And that's going to be an interesting press conference because you're pretty much going to have everyone in Chicago media uh, at Guarantee Rate Field for the kickoff of the Crosstown Classic. And there was this quote after Saturday's loss in which the White Sox lost 3-2. to two. They gave Dylan Cease an early 2-1 to one lead, and then things got weird late in the game in which Pedro Grafal burned the DH because he had Zach Remillard pinch running for Eloy Jimenez, who was a DH. And when asked about it, Grafal said, quote, I'm glad you mentioned that because he's not running down the line, he being Eloy Jimenez, and I choose to put... Jimenez there with that kind of effort down the line. I want his bat over his legs. I want to make sure I get that out there clear for everybody. I chose his bat over his legs. That's all he could give us. I'll continue to monitor that. And if I think it becomes a problem for us where he's going to get hurt or compromise us in any way running the bases, then I'll make a change. But for right now, I'm choosing his bat over his legs. And when asked if Jimenez would get the day off on Sunday, Grafal added, I'm not giving him a day Tomorrow, he's playing tomorrow. We've got to win that ball game tomorrow, end quote. Well, it did work out for Grafal because Eloy Jimenez did hit a solo home run to start the scoring for the White Sox, and they were up 3 to nothing going into the ninth inning, and he did not pinch run for Eloy, so he had another at-bat for Eloy in extra innings. But for a game that they're supposed to win tomorrow, they did not win that game tomorrow, and thus this is the conversation we're having regarding Grafal. We're going to talk about the Andrew Vaughn injury in a moment because I know it's pretty easy to group what's going on with Jimenez and Vaughn. But Fall continues to manage this White Sox squad like they still have that hope, Jim. And that's why I mentioned in the beginning of this show that I don't know if he truly understands for someone that rarely goes on the internet Mm -hmm. how far away they are. And... That's where I'm asking, like, why is there just a disconnect with all facets of the Chicago White Sox organization about the the reality that they're currently in? Like, is this just refusal to acknowledge where they currently are and they still want to press on in the last 60 games of the season, still having hope that they're going to pull off this miracle run that's never been pulled off before in Major League Baseball history? Is it that? Mm -hmm. Or what else could it possibly be? Like, is it a level of incompetence that we have not seen with this organization? I don't take Grafal literally when he says, you know, this is a game we have to win. I take that more as a reflection of his limitations as a communicator with the public. Um, okay. I think, you know, he's, he's referred to the standings before. He's referred to being like 17, 18 games under 500. Like just, you know, that far out of it. So he understands where the White Sox are. He just doesn't have a sense of humor. He doesn't really have a fire and brimstone personality. He's kind of like a taskmaster. He's very serious about baseball, but he doesn't have like the kind of 
disarming sense of humor or the ability to go into gallows humor mode to empathize with fans or to kind of connect with what the public is seeing. So you're left with just these very dry assessments of like, well, the only way we can uh, get out of this is to still treat every ball game as seriously as we would if we were three games above 500 and neck and neck with the twins, which is, you know, understandable. It's reasonable to a certain extent, but it's not how humans work. It's how uh, baseball fans work, sports fans work. They, you know, they they log on to the internet. They see the standings. They know whether or not to be invested over the last two months. And the players know that too. It, it, it seeps in. So, you know, I, I think I saw it was Jordan Lazowski who was talking about just, you know, what's he supposed to say? And like, there's a lot he could say if he were a different person, you know, whether just like making fun of himself, making fun of the team, like just, you know, poking fun at the situation being like, yeah, this is terrible. Like I always mention Terry Francona, somebody who's very good at charm offensives and disarming the press and things aren't going well. Like he can, you know, he can defend his players, poke at them a little bit. You know, if you, if certainly if the Guardians release somebody, you know, he'll criticize why or if something's leading up to a change, like he'll light a fire. But otherwise, when it's just like ordinary ruts or like the standings are against him, he's pretty good at just communicating with the fans through the media as like a human. And Griffal really doesn't have that mode. Like Griffal has never been in the, in the situation where he's the guy talking to the public. He's always been bench coach or catching coach or hitting coach like guys who very seldom uh interact directly with fans or are asked for their opinions on player or strategy or prospects so i think we're seeing the limitations of that as him as a first-time manager going into this high pressure situation it going about as poorly as possible and him having to explain it day in and day out and i'm not sure if he's getting any coaching or like talking to people i know like he's he was close uh, friends with Eduardo Perez and like, you know, Eduardo Perez is my pick for a manager. Not, you know, I wasn't fully invested in it, but just thought he was an interesting candidate. And part of it is like, he's used to talking to media fans, uh, viewers, you know, very used to being, uh, you know, having his personality out front and center. That's kind of what uh, he lives on as a broadcaster, as an analyst. And, you know, somebody like him might be able to like, just yeah you can't really like you can't laugh too hard because fans will be offended by that if you you don't take it seriously but there is a level of just um sharing in the fans disgust while also just showing like hey we're you know i can relate to griffal the frustration frustration he's speaking but like he just sounds flat and you know, kind of miserable, but he never sounds happy. So like, there's no emotional range to dial into as a fan to kind of understand where he's at. And so there's just no reason to really feel invested in the job he's doing. I don't know if comedy would be a good angle at this moment, obviously with him being the new guy, like I would get trying to disarm the beat reporters that are directly speaking to you, but comedy is going to fall pretty flat right now. You can go gallows though. I mean, that's what we're all doing. It's a defense mechanism. It's we uh, can, we could get away with that, Jim. I don't well, think I mean, anyone from the white Sox can get away with that right now. Like if Tuesday, for example, yeah. that is not going to go well. 
with the fan base. If he, well, it depends. If he's making uh, jokes about like how he's going to have to line up another job, people would love to hear that. <laughs> they may take him <laughs> literally, though. Be like, yes, please go to Indeed.com, Rick. And but I mean, like, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Like, just something that just shows, like, you know, just... Like, there's just no, he has no personality, or at least he's conveyed no personality. So just he feels like somebody, um, like, kind of like chat GPT or something like that. Like, uh, chat GPT, give me <laughs> the reasons why the White Sox lost this game and why the White Sox might do better based on the box score or game log. <laughs> yeah. And he would do that. And, like, that's kind of how it feels. So... That that's you know that's kind of how I look at it. You can't go say like, yeah, you can't go into like a Rodney Dangerfield act and say like we're so bad, but <laughs> you can just, you know, I, I think you know some level of humor, at least some ability to be like an orator, <laughs> and, and you know it doesn't have to be humor, but humor is the easiest way to uh, break through like you know uh, turn a you know a scowl into like a smirk. <laughs> And uh, right now he just doesn't have that in his bag. He doesn't really have anything in his bag aside from like just very dry assessments of what the team is doing. And when you, when it's the same thing week after week and you just hear him saying the same thing over and over again, he knows he sounds like a broken record, but he doesn't have any way of sounding any different. So you just tune him out. I asked on Twitter and we'll get to the first Twitter poll later in the show when we talk about Rick Khan. But continuing the conversation about Pedro Gafal, one of the Twitter polls was, do you approve of the job Pedro Gafal is doing? And out of 1,117 votes on Twitter, which you can follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine, you can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh, 91% say no. So that means Pedro Gafal, based on our Twitter poll, unscientific, Let's say approval rate of 9%. Do you agree with that assessment, Jim? Is that too high? Is that too low? How how would you determine that for a manager who's only managed 101 games? It's about right. I mean, part of it's unfair because of all the baggage he's inherited, but it's it's bad. He's not breaking through. I mean, to that point, he was hired to try to break through, get the core healthy, getting them to play in the level that they're supposed to play. And only Luis Robert is doing that. Like he didn't break through with them. Yeah. And like I said, there's no reason to care about him. Like that's kind of how, it, you know, when you come to a manager and you're talking about like the guy who talks to the media every day, the guy who conveys the White Sox plans and what they're seeing and what they can do about it. Like it's very important to connect like that's why Dusty Baker has been around for as long as he has because sure. he's, you know, he's had highs and lows, a lot more highs and lows, but like he's had certainly some professional lows and he's great at just connecting and realizing like, Oh, that guy's actually pretty cool. I may hate the way he, like he over, you know, overworked our starters or had the wrong lineup or whatnot, but like, like it was a person. <laughs> and so like, you get the sense that, you know, you get an idea of who the person is running the team. And so even if you want him changed out, you feel slightly bad about that. Like Rick Renteria, like I thought he did a good job of connecting what he exactly he wanted to see. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he wasn't the most personal individual or like the most varied, uh, eclectic individual. Like we didn't have an idea of like just, you know, 
all the cars he drove and the people he knew <laughs> like Dusty Baker will go on and on about like, you know, just he'll, he'll name drop like crazy and Renteria is more buttoned down, but like just has a sense of the person and how he saw the team and how he, what he wanted to see and what he didn't like. And, and over the course of the years, like the White Sox responded to him well enough to where he got a sense of like how the team was supposed to look, how a Rick Renteria team was supposed to look. Right now, we have no idea like how a Pedro Grafal team is supposed to look, aside from like boilerplate stuff that has not come close to materializing. So it's just, you know, he's uh, just there. He's kind of furniture at this point. And it's like furniture, it's taking on a lot of smoke, <laughs> a lot of water. Uh, I don't know if you're going to be able to fumigate that uh, just when it comes to a new team. Uh, so that's why I think like in terms of, you know, 9% approval rating, like, if the White Sox side tore it all, tear it all down, and they brought a new GM and yeah to bring in, like I'd say, yeah, get rid of Grafal. Like, there's no reason to to have that baggage carry over to a new administration. He has not proven himself in any way. The White Sox can do better. I don't think they can do worse. Yeah, maybe they can do worse as a person. <laughs> like we've seen, mm-hmm. we've seen enough in the White Sox minor league system to know the White Sox can do uh, worse as a person managing a team. But just in terms of results and just vibes and uh, just a sense of what the White Sox are supposed to be and who the person is leading them. Like, there's just nothing there. Well, let's go into... Well, so with the Le- Aloy Jimenez, again, he hit a home run, and he'll probably continue playing. The groin is an issue. You could tell even with his home run trot, the groin is bugging Eloy. He's not going to be able to play in the field for a while, until he gets some type extended rest. And he's not going to get that rest because, again, I, I I get where you're coming from, Jim, that Grafal may not be a good communicator. But I think there's also part of him that he does not want to quit yet. That he doesn't want to wave the white flag, even though someone should be waving the white flag. And part of that is let's not make things worse for Eloy. Let's put Eloy on the injured list so he could heal here is Clint Frazier again from Charlotte, which is a big drop off in production, but that's kind of where you're at right now. You're looking ahead to 2024. Let's not make matters worse for Eloy. That brings us into the conversation regarding Andrew Vaughn. And this comes from the Chicago Sun-Times from Daryl Van Scowen. First baseman Andrew Vaughn's left foot still hurts when he walks, enough to have him in a boot at times, but the White Sox aren't considering putting Vaughn on the injured list right now. What? He's in a walking boot? He didn't play this entire weekend? The deadline to retroactive put him on the injured list is set to expire Mm -hmm. Sunday night, so maybe things change when you guys are listening to this podcast after we record it and edit it and put it out there that maybe Vaughn retroactively got onto the injured list. But you are now playing shorthanded unless Andrew Vaughn Jim is stepping into the batter's box with a boot instead of a cleat <laughs> mm-hmm. to hit this. Like, okay, the, the, yeah. the Eloy, he's got a bad groin, but we saw on Sunday he's still got a power to be effective. Andrew Vaughn is already slow. He runs like he's Fred Flintstone. He's got a bad tire. He's in a walking boot. And you are hoping that with a day off on Monday and evaluate him on Tuesday, that something magically is going to change with his boon bro, uh, his bone bruise in his left foot, <laughs> his, boom his bruise. boon bruise, his bone bruise in his left foot, that he could play 
or be an option, a bad option off the bench. Like, I'm sorry, this is just stupid. This is part of the disconnect with reality for the White Sox. And I know you wrote about this all weekend, Jim, but how does Mm -hmm. this continue to happen? Like, I know we ask ourselves this question all the time. He's in a walkie boot for crying out loud. Like, just put him on the injured list. Yeah. No, three things that drive me nuts about this. One is that, like, Vaughn is having a terrible July. Mm -hmm. 188, 204, 208, his triple slash line. 15 walks or 15 strikeouts, zero walks, 49 plate appearances. You're not interrupting him while he's hot. It's not like Eloy. Like Eloy is perpetually getting hot. Mm -hmm. Like that's how he spent most of his White Sox career is just on the cusp of breaking out. And then like some, you know, hamstring or groin or whatever gets in the way and he can't continue. So that's why, like, I understand the fundamental desire to have Jimenez play through it if he's getting his A swings off, which he seems to be. Like, he's he's ripping that bat through the zone. You can see him wince afterwards, like, with his follow-through. But the swing looks good. He hit a homer in his less than 100% state. Like, that's there. What drives me nuts, though, is, like, you know, Jimenez, you can't play him and have Vaughn soaking up a roster spot. Like, you can't have Jimenez need a caddy and then have Vaughn be unavailable for a week and have three catchers, none of whom can play the outfield, to the point where Zach Remillard comes in. Poor Zach Remillard. <laughs> like, getting Peter principled as fast as possible because, like, he likes, he's competent in the infield and knows what he's doing. Surely he can play right field and target field with the weird limestone overhang that he has to be on the lookout for for any, any deep drive that takes him back to the warning track. And then sure enough, he has to go back and then loses his bearings and commits a key error on Lance Lynn's watch. And like, you can't, you know, like you could play Jimenez if you had an ability to like go to Clint Frazier or go to Adam Hazley and have a real outfielder backing him up. But if Jimenez can't play the outfield and if Vaughn's not there and you have three catchers, like you have no fourth outfielder. You have like no way to like get a, you know, make all the substitutions Griffal wants to make. So he has to like change something, but he changes nothing about the way he goes about it. Uh, the third thing that drives me nuts is in that Daryl Van Scowen story. Uh, the, the quote, you know, uh, comes in the third graph. Vaughn followed pitch off his foot Tuesday against the Mets, missed his fourth consecutive game. A lot of teams off Monday. Griffal's quote, we haven't even talked about the IL. Unbelievable. Why does he say that? He doesn't mean it, but why does he say it? Or I'm, I assume he doesn't mean it. It's it's uh, dereliction of duty if you don't talk about the IL for a guy in a walking boot. Like, but he says that. It's not the first time he said that either. He's talked about that before. Like, we haven't even talked about it. Like, Tim Anderson, the leadoff spot. Uh, just, you know, active problems. Yohan Mankata. Haven't even talked about it. Like you need to talk about it. That's your job. You're saying I'm not doing my job. And like, I, I keep coming back to the word myopia, myopic, you know, nearsightedness, you know, focused so intently on something. He misses the bigger picture about like either trickle down effects on the rest of the roster or the lineup or just how he comes across. And this is a case, like if you're not talking about Andrew Vaughn, if you're not even talking mm-hmm about Andrew Vaughn possibly going to the IL. What are you doing? What is your job? And I know that's why I, I know he doesn't mean it because I assume he's trying his, you know, his damnedest to turn this thing around because like he doesn't want to be a one and done manager. Like if he doesn't, if this doesn't work out, he's shown nothing to get this job anywhere else. This is his opportunity. He has to try to do what he can with it. So I assume that he doesn't mean that. But why are you saying things you don't mean? Yep. 
especially when they make you look bad. <laughs> like that's, that's what I mean about like this, this inability like to connect with the public and to communicate. He's like, even if he's dry and boring and just, you know, about the facts, like this is a case where this can't possibly be a fact. And he's saying it and it does nobody any favors. Cause I mean, Vaughn hasn't played in a week. Like it's not doing him any favors. Like if he comes back, you're going to be looking at every step, like putting him on the microscope. It's like, it's just, it's bad. It's bad communication. And there's no sense in like, there's no benefit to anybody involved to pretend like Vaughn might possibly go on the injury list for a, a injury that's kept him out for what will be a week, basically, you know, when, once you get to Tuesday. What if he does mean it, Jim? What if Grafal is... Then fire him. <laughs> <I> mean... <laughs> like, fire. like, I mean, that's just, like, you, that's the most basic part of the manager's job is, like, who's available, you know, who's not, who can go tomorrow, who needs a day off, who needs to go on the injured list, you know, constant communication about the availability and what you need to execute the game plan you want. So if he wants to make all the subs that he wants to make, then he needs a 26-man roster, or at least he needs a 25-man roster. But right now he's down to like 24, 23 and a half, depending on how you view the three catchers, which basically any other team in baseball doesn't have. Like, where's Charlie Mantoyo in all this as the bench coach and someone that has very recent experience managing? Like he's he should be helping, right? I would keep a low profile for him. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, I'm don't bring me into this. Luis Robert doesn't know my name. That's fine. <laughs> Witness it's so protection. corporate. Who are you? Uh, okay. What what do you do here? Well, I have a very poor role. Blah 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 blah. It's very corporate. Like you. You don't want to stick out because if you stick out, then you get attention. And once you get attention, it's hard to hide when you're just there to collect a check. I'm not accusing Charlie Montoya of doing that, but to Jim's yeah. point, like the fact that you openly admitted to the press that you haven't even talked about putting Andrew Vaughn in the injured list is stupid. When he's walking around in a boot, and I'm sure he's walking around in a boot in the clubhouse that all the press reporters could see and you don't need to be a doctor to understand that's not good, <laughs> especially for a professional athlete. So, yeah, that's the weekend, folks. That's uh, that's what's gone on for the White Sox inside the clubhouse as they get swept by the Minnesota Twins. They fall to 41 and 60 on the season. They're 19 games below 500. Their postseason chances are going to be as close to zero as it could possibly be on fan graphs when things update on Monday. That's where we are right now as the White Sox head into a day off. But we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. We're going to shift gears here because a lot of attention needs to be directed to the White Sox front office now, especially with the trade deadline just eight days away. How do White Sox fans feel about Rick Hahn and who are the updated trade possibilities the White Sox could move before Tuesday's deadline. We'll talk about that next on the Sox Machine Podcast. The biggest acts are visiting Chicago this summer on top of all the baseball games and other great concerts, theater shows too. It could be quite the chore and headache trying to secure tickets to all of these shows and events. Buying tickets shouldn't be stressful. Use game time to purchase your tickets. Game time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for sports, music, comedy, theater near you. They've got killer deals on last-minute tickets, and their best price guarantee helps eliminate stressing over tickets. If you find tickets in the same section or even row for less, 
GameTime will credit you 110% of the difference. That's why GameTime is the fastest growing ticketing app in the country. Download the GameTime app, create your account, and get $20 off your first purchase using our promo code SOCKSMACHINE. Terms and conditions apply. Again, create an account and use our promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $20 off your first ticket purchase. Game time. Last minute tickets, lowest prices, guaranteed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. All right, so we shift gears. We talked about Pedro Grafal. We talked about the disconnect. We talked about the stupidity of what's going on with Andrew Vaughn and the walking boot and why the White Sox don't put him on the injured list. Let's turn our direction to the front office for the Chicago White Sox because, again, the August 1st trade deadline is quickly approaching. We have not seen a lot of trade activity across Major League Baseball. We are expecting it to pick up here as the teams, the contenders are starting to draw attention and start separate separating from the pack, unless you're in the American League East, which we know that's going to be a fight for the entire season. But for the White Sox, I mean, the season is over. Again, they're 19 games below 500. They're 12 games back of the American League Central. So attention is now drawn to General Manager Rick Hahn, which again, we are expecting him to speak to the media before Tuesday night's game against the Chicago Cubs. While I posted on Twitter the approval poll for Pedro Grafal, and he was at 9%, I did the same for Rick Hahn. A lot more votes with this poll. 1,944 votes. 5% approve of the job that Rick Hahn is doing, and I am suspecting about 90% of that 5% are Minnesota Twins fans, which if I was a Twins fan, yes, I would be approving of the job that Rick Hahn is doing which means 95% of the people that participate in the poll do not approve of the job Rick Hahn is doing. And as each day passes that the White Sox are not moving into a direction as the losses continue to pile up, I imagine, Jim, that 5% is going to continue shrinking Mm -hmm. on Rick Hahn. This is where it's tough right now to analyze and have a discussion about what the White Sox could do before the deadline. I think everyone involved, fans, us, other media outlets, all agree the White Sox need some type of movement to move into some type of direction. But nobody 
thinks it's a good idea that Rick Hahn's making these decisions. That's where it's really tough to analyze this. How, how do you feel when you hear that Rick Hahn's approval rate from our Twitter poll is just 5%? <laughs> With a 5% margin of error. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I think to go back to Griffal real quick, I think like Hahn's ability to communicate, to be somebody who's pretty affable and have a sense of humor um, to, you know, get by, to be like the point person, you know, when, even when Kenny Williams was in charge, like Han did a lot of the talking and like his ability to do that bought him a lot of goodwill or bought him a longer, um, shelf life. I think when it came to the media, cause I think generally speaking, people wanted to see him succeed. Like they like dealing with him as a person and it's just not working out. And I think, you know, some people are, uh, ripping into him. Some people are don't want to, but just haven't seen results and there's nowhere else to say, but like point to the front office and say, this isn't working and say, it's yeah, he's a reflection of just where things go wrong in the Reinsdorf organization. But like, that's a case of him being somebody who's good at public, uh, public address until you learn his, you know, until he runs out of things to say and you learn his tricks and realize like, Oh, he's just been saying the same thing over and over again. But like Griffal is, you know, three months in, he's in his fourth month and he's run out of, <laughs> he's already exhausted the supply of things he knows how to say. So uh, with that in mind, when I look at the standings, you know, I, I'm, I've stopped looking at how far the White Sox are out of the first place. Now I'm looking at how far they are behind the Tigers because that's, I think, more embarrassing than being like X number of games behind the Twins or behind the Guardians. You're five games behind the Tigers who were missing their entire starting rotation at one point. And, you know, the White Sox have a better run differential, a better offense, yet still five games behind the Tigers. And that's the Tigers team that fired its general manager because he did nothing. I mean, he did a lot. He did a lot wrong. But like in terms of what seemed to finally push uh, the Illich family to make the move, was that the trade deadline came and went, and I think he just moved Robbie Grossman, and that was it. Like, he had a bullpen full of guys that he could have moved and didn't, and just did not see any kind of acknowledgement that the current state of the roster wasn't working and more drastic action needed to be taken. And so they fired him. They eventually hired Scott Harris. And Scott Harris, I think, has a leeway to not rebuild, but also just... uh, if he has to reset the clock by a year or two, nobody's going to mind because just that's Avila hit a dead end. And I, I think, you know, Han is facing the same pressures. Like he's got a deadline that he needs to basically dismantle the team that he built and admit that stop not working, uh, stop doing what he's doing. And if he's doing anything at all and just say like, we're looking at 2025 now. If 2024 happens, great. Uh, We're not going to do a teardown because there's no point. Uh, You know, we're going to compete with some of the talent we have on hand. Some of the talent is moving out. We need to get something for it. Um, And this, we've given it three years now and it's, it peaked (laughs) uh, two years ago. This is not working. And my fear is that Han just doesn't have that in him, that he doesn't, you know, he's had years now to fundamentally transform or alter the roster, he saw what the limitations were against Houston in the ALDS in 2021, did nothing to that team except for bolstering the bullpen. That team went 500 and spent the entire season 500, did nothing to the team afterwards. Just assume like, oh, you know, Tony LaRusso was the root of our problems. Somebody more in tune with what Clubhouse is doing and more proactive will um, get it back. And now they're even worse. So... 
Like he's had opportunities to do things to make, he's had some license to make some changes that fans would understand and players would probably understand. We're too right-handed. We don't play good enough defense. We need more home run power. We need more on base guys, what have you. Uh, that, you know, he could have made, he could have taken some swings like Kenny Williams taking some swings, like probably the quintessential move in this regard for Kenny Williams was trading Aaron Rowan for Jim Tomey. Like you understood why he did it. It was a bold move. Didn't pan out immediately, panned out a couple of years later. He saw the merit in it, but just like actively trying to solve a problem and using like the few resources he had that were attracted to other teams to make it work. So like Han just did not want to do that or couldn't find a way to do it. Couldn't find a price he was willing to accept. Couldn't even you know risk taking a loss on one trade to maybe unlock the roster a little bit mm-hmm. and make moves that might ultimately kind of like a five point turn. Like <laughs> can't do a U-turn. Yeah. You know, it's going to take a few like stops and starts. He's going to, you know, some people are going to be irritated watching him, but ultimately like he's going to get the direction he needs to go. You know, once this, you know, maneuvering is over, but like he just never really started that maneuvering and just cut a couple like patches and those have not held up or, you know, he's trying to protect leads with adding the bullpen time and time again. And like run prevention is not the problem. It has been the problem at times, but like overall the offense is the problem. So like there is no reason to think that like Han suddenly has it in him that like I'm going to make these moves and admit that I, you know, everything I've been working towards the last six years hasn't accomplished anything. And, you know, I'm going to go back to the drawing board. Like one, he shouldn't be allowed to, uh, like I mentioned in the couple, uh, a couple of posts ago on Sox machine, like the mired in mediocrity speech was exactly six years ago. And the same guy is still in charge. And like, I don't know what you do with that. Like in terms of like, there's nowhere else to point the finger, but Han and Williams and Reinsdorf. Uh, but yeah, just also it's, it's kind of implausible to think like, yeah, you're going to hire a new front office in the middle of the season right before the trade deadline. So he's got to do something. Uh, and you hope that like he has it in him to make some trades that ultimately help the White Sox in the long-term picture, even if it isn't like meaningful impact. And then ultimately the White Sox go on the Avila timeline, fire him, and then have their eye towards getting a new front office lined up for the off season. I mean, that would be wonderful, but I have this growing sense of doubt. That's not what we're going to get as those that follow the White Sox. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm trying to speak this into existence. No, I get it. Understand I, that. <laughs> I, I understand where you're coming from. But again, yeah. Jerry Reinsdorf's 87 years old. I just don't think no new I, I just don't think he's got the energy to be able to conduct a front office interview process to hire a president of baseball operations, which he technically still doesn't have, even though Kenny Williams kind of acts like that. There's no title within the Chicago White Sox organization like that. Uh, my all, my other fear is that if Jerry seeks for outside counsel, that's probably going to be Tony the Russa giving him that outside counsel. <laughs> At least it's not Hawk. At least it's not Hawk. But, you know, with Rick, and when he addresses the media on Tuesday, let's say he does admit, my plan did not work. What we drew up in... After the 2016 season, during the winter meetings in 2016, when we started this journey, we obviously did not end at the point that we wanted to. We promised fans a parade. Our goal was to win a championship. We are very far away from doing that. 
there's going to be some pushback again, because you're going to have all of Chicago sports media at guarantee Ray field, because there's nothing else to cover right now in Chicago sports that pushback asked, will ask him, do you think you still, do you think you should still be the general manager of the Chicago white Sox? And he's going to say that's up to Jerry because that's what everybody mm-hmm. has been saying this season. Well, Jerry doesn't speak publicly. So I, I, my growing sense of dread is that this is a weekend at Bernie situation that Rick and Kenny are just propping up Jerry at the moment. And I don't know how you fix that. And I want, I don't want to get too morbid on how you fix that, but I don't know how you fix that. So we're all hoping for the guy that's got a 5% approval rating, which the majority of those are people that have admitted on Twitter that they fat fingered the poll and select the wrong option or, <laughs> or misread the question, misread yeah. the question or they're Minnesota twins fans playing a joke. But this, this has got to be a really bad feeling that nobody wants you to have this job, but you got to do this job. Like if you're Rick Hahn, you have no option. You have to do this job. If you don't do this job, the apathy will continue to grow. And for those that do care, the anger will be at a such a high that I, it, it will definitely be approaching Garpax type of anger mm-hmm. directed at Rick Hahn for not doing your job. And I guess we'll see because next time he speaks to the media, it'll be a week from the trade deadline. Now, who could the White Sox possibly trade? We've been talking a lot about Lucas Giolito. We mentioned that in the latest podcast. I picked eight teams that could be targets for a Lucas Giolito trade. He's made two starts this week. He pitched better in Minneapolis after his clunker against the New York Mets. He pitched five scoreless innings, but it took a lot of pitches to get there. And there were some pitches that he threw that were a bit concerning, like an 89-mile-per-hour fastball, and Giolito was constantly shaking off his throwing arm. So something to monitor in Giolito's next probable start which is supposed to be against the Cleveland Guardians at home. Maybe that will be his last start. However, the longer that the White Sox have waited to trade Lucas Giolito, other names are starting to pop up in the starting pitching market when it comes to trades. As we continue to go down this week, Lucas Giolito is suddenly not going to be number one in the available starting pitchers of the trade power rankings. And then there is the bullpen options. Joe Kelly has returned, and Joe Kelly looked strong in his Sunday appearance against the Minnesota Twins, hitting triple digits with his fastball. Renato Lopez is an unrestricted free agent after this season. And all of a sudden, Yasmani Grandal is getting feisty at the plate, and he's putting together good at-bats. This was a interesting question that was posed to us during the watch party from our friends at From the 108 uh, by Beefloaf and Cherizi. Who do you think could be the first player moved so let's talk about that question, borrowing it from that and putting it into the podcast for those that did get a chance to watch the participate in the watch party, Jim. Mm-hmm. Who could be the first guy to move if Rick Hahn moves anyone? I think we both agreed during the watch party that like Keenan Middleton is probably the simplest move because he's making the league minimum. Like he does not mm-hmm. uh, preclude teams from like adding another considerable salary or shifting guys around. Um, you know, he would be added to a bullpen, which is eight guys. Like it's not a matter of like trying to find the right fits on a bench or a 13 man, uh, you know, position player unit. Like 
probably a team that acquires him needs a major league arm and he's one of those so like he would be the simplest move in the White Sox get like a player to be named later uh, for a guy who's basically found money for the White Sox because they acquired him as a non-roster invitee so that would seem to be like the least complicated transaction I think on both sides you know trading somebody who they might not have thought would make the major league roster at any point during the season. And all of a sudden he turns into like a, I don't know, like a 24 year old outfielder or something like that, or like an 18 year old arm, but it's something that uh, you didn't have before. Yeah. I agree with you with Keenan Middleton. Again, he was an $800,000 signing for the white Sox this year. So any team that trades for Middleton, let's say before Tuesday's game against the Chicago Cubs, the remaining salary is between 250 and $300,000. That's nothing. Uh, for major league teams. So that's a drop in the bucket. One team I'd be paying attention to is the Milwaukee Brewers. They do like these relievers that are, they're not afraid of the change of focus type of relievers, especially when they got Devin Williams closing out games. And we know the White Sox and Brewers are not strangers to each other when making trades before the deadline. Yasmani Grandal's market. I'm really curious if he could be moved because he is showing some signs of life. He has been playing first base as of late because of the whole thing with Andrew Vaughn. And I don't know if the White Sox have given up on Gavin Sheets. What do you think about Yasmati Grandal? Is it viable that he could be moved before the deadline? There are a lot of bad second catchers out there. A lot of bad first catchers out there. So like he would seem to find a home. Like I think Arizona's had a rough uh, patch with their catchers. Cincinnati's really bad. Miami is really bad among teams that are trying to angle for a postseason spot. And if they have the ability to add somebody like Grandal who can catch a couple times a week and maybe appear as a DH, if he's, you know, feeling good and the bats ripping through the zone, maybe it makes sense. I think, you know, the obstacle there is like how much salary has left, how much the White Sox want to give up for him. So that's why, like, I think like somebody like Middleton can move like in a snap and be gone and, and find a taker. Whereas like, Grandal would require more haggling, kind of like the Alex Rios trade, um, where they got Larry Garcia back from him, him or back for him. And there's more a matter of like, you know, do we want to pay all his remaining salary? Do we want to save a million? Do we want to save two million? Like trying to figure out what players you can get for how much cash you send along the way. So that's why I think like if that one happens, it'll probably happen towards the end, just because of all the catchers who, you know, whether teams are trying to promote guys, prospects that might be on their way up already know some of the pitchers in the system and have, you know, had some of the coaching. Because uh, I know that teams are kind of loath to shake up their catcher ranks because of just how much uh, the relationship with pitchers matters. Um, like Grandall, like his last time when he wasn't with the Sox was with the Dodgers, or at least you know, he had the Brewers too, but like the Dodgers, he had that uh, issue with dropping pitches and losing the faith with pitchers and, you know, going to Austin Barnes uh, in the postseason. So like it is a delicate situation with catchers. So I think that's why like as obvious as it might be to say like, hey, Marlins, you need a catcher. Jacob Stallings mm-hmm. not cutting it. Uh, Grandall can be your guy. You know, he he loves Miami already. You know, he's, he knows where all the good restaurants are. Like he'll fit right in. Like there's still like a component of like, well, our pitchers like throwing to him. Well, our pitchers like, you know, is it worth just, you know, doing the Houston thing and saying Martin Maldonado is fine because our pitchers like throwing to him and just trying to look for offense anywhere else. That's why I think, you know, moving Grandal is complicated. Yeah. Grandal estimated left of his salary in 2023 is six and a half million dollars. And 
You mentioned the Alex Rios comp, and I always forget that Lurie Garcia came from that trade. So the White Sox got quite a bit out of that deal with Texas, uh, or at least longevity out of that deal with Lurie <laughs> Garcia uh, sticking around. How much money could the White Sox possibly eat out of that contract as far as a, a, a deal if they decide to move Yes, Buddy Grandal? Does it make sense for them to eat half of it, like $3 million, and then the other team will have to pay like $3.5 million to increase the odds of getting a better prospect? Or is this simply an opportunity for the White Sox just to cut salary off the books? I think, and it's, you know, here's a case where it's not my money and you know, nobody should mm-hmm. be too concerned, but just in, in terms of like what the White Sox aspirations are for next year, like if they're not going to meaningfully add next year and they're going to look at 2024 as a like retrenching and trying to figure out like who's staying, who's going, laying some contracts laps off the books, like waiting out Yohan Mankata, waiting out, um, you know, like Joe, yeah, or not Joe Kelly, but like Kendall Graven, or just trying to, if he's still around, Liam Hendricks, just, you know, unfortunately the, um, you know, they did not anticipate his career turning the way it did. Uh, and so like, you know, that's something that they have to negotiate, but by 2025, like their, uh, roster obligations, their payroll obligations are virtually nil. Like you'll have Dylan Cease in the last year of arbitration and that's it. And like, Andrew Vaughn doesn't seem like he's going to be an uh, arbitration monster. So like they have nobody that they have to make room for currently, you know, setting a huge trajectory for their future earnings. So to me, it makes sense to like send as much money as you want, because like that money is just gonna be melting off the books. And like you already counted on spending that money this year. You're probably counting on spending not all that much next year. And then all of a sudden, like your payroll is nothing. It's Luis Roberts. It's some buyouts. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's in maybe like a club option for Eloy Jimenez, but like, that's about it. So, you know, just send the money now that you thought you're going to have to spend anyway and try to maximize the return. And if it's, you know, kind of cements the White Sox not really going for it in any meaningful way in 2024, that's fine. You know, it's wanting to speak into existence. Like if the White Sox got a new front office, I'd be cool with their new front office saying like, we want a, we want a year to see what this is all about. And like, sure, uh-huh. take all as much time as you need. Just fix it. You know, just to, you know, do the job right. Uh, even if it takes uh a year to fully assess it. Like that's, that's the kind of thing, like why I want a new front office just because that does by leeway with the fans that any plan that Rick Hahn could come up with won't because he's exhausted going for it. He's exhausted rebuilding. Like there's nothing he can do that says like, yeah, this will work out. <laughs> so that's why like send as much money as possible you know, maximize the return on what you built and then hope that whoever's in charge of the next one, you know, that that set of trades gives them at least one guy to work with or two guys to work with, even if they're a bench infielder or a medium leverage reliever, just something to help fill a roster spot at the league minimum. If you ate five million and the team that you dealt with only has to pay Grandal a million and a half. That'll make it a lot easier to trade. <laughs> That's funny, Grandal. Same thing with Lance Lynn as well. Like, same type of situation. If the White Sox are willing to eat the majority of the cash remaining on the contract for this year, 
or in Lynn's case, sending a million dollars over for that team to buy out Lynn uh, after the season uh, instead of picking up the option. It makes it a lot easier to move these types of guys, especially if there's more sellers approaching or coming to market with other options before the trade deadline. This is a difficult time here for the White Sox. They really should start unloading players, but the way that they have handled past trade deadlines suggests that they're going to wait until the very end uh, to move some guys. And the longer you wait, uh, you're inviting more competition into the market. Where I yeah, think the, one, the White Sox could stand out. I'm sorry, go ahead, Jim. I said, like, the one thing I'd say about that is, like, I'm not, you know, I, I think I, we've had some questions and seen some tweets saying, like, White Sox should jump the market. It's like, nobody's making trades, though. So, like, that's the one thing I will say about the White Sox. Like, if nobody's making trades, you can't say, like, please take my player. Please. Like, that's kind of what, you know, comes down to. So, like, I will, you know, if the market starts moving and the White Sox aren't towards the front of the action, then I'd be like, hmm, is this yeah. Rakan getting cold feet again? But, like, when nobody's moving, I'm inclined to say just nobody is willing to click send yet. <laughs> or they just don't like the players. Yeah, don't like the players or they're just waiting for all options to become available before saying like, you know, July 28th hits and be like, okay, we got to move. We need that start. We had that injury. This will do it. Yeah. Fine. Send. I don't know. Maybe we should need, maybe we need a whole podcast episode to talk about this, but what could really flip on its head for this market is if the White Sox decide that Dylan Cease is seriously available before the deadline. He's the one that I think could be the Luis Castillo of last year's trade market where, mm -hmm. again, Cincinnati got Seattle's number one prospect plus three other prospects in that trade, sending Luis Castillo over to Seattle because he had a year and a half left on his deal. And to your point, Jim, like if 2024 is just like a reload year for the White Sox, in 2025, if Cease has entered his final year of team control, Cease is a Scott Boris client, so let's just not even entertain the idea of him signing a long-term contract with the White Sox. I, I don't think that is going to happen as long as Jerry Reinsdorf is the chairman and Kenny Williams is still involved with the organization. I don't think that is going to happen. This is the best time to trade Dillard Cease because this is where he's at his most valuable. Mm-hmm. And again, if you don't train him before the deadline, you could entertain trading him in the off season where he has two more years of control. It's somewhat of a strong starting pitching free agent market. You have four or five guys that will be of interest uh, as free agents, uh, but not as intriguing as Dylan Cease on the cheap for two years of arbitration and the level of production that he can provide. Uh, especially being second in the American League Cy Young voting last season. He's the one that if the White Sox have a change of heart or a change of mind, and they don't think they're going to be competitive in 2024, this would be the time to start taking those conversations more seriously. And if you can't get a deal done before the deadline, at least you've had those conversations and you have ammo to go into the GM meetings or even winter meetings next year to make that type of deal. Like I'm starting to think, and as each day passes, it grows in my head. This might be the last season 
of Dylan Cease with the White Sox. I don't know if it should be. There's a part of me that says hold on mm-hmm. to him and let's see where you could be in 2024 or even 2025 because the White Sox will get way worse without Dylan Cease. But if there's mm-hmm. uncertainty in 2024 and there's even more unhaziness in the 2025 season, logically speaking, if you're trying to get the most out of your players in a trade, Dylan Cease will bring you back the most. Yeah. I mean, the hardest thing about trading him is like, what's the rotation? Like that just completely. I know. Making the team unwatchable probably on a day-to-day basis, like hoping to get four innings from somebody is what you're looking at. Or just, you know, the one-year contract of a guy, you know, like the next Mike Clevenger of somebody you hope he can flip. Uh, at deadline. That's kind of what you're looking at. But, you know, I mean, having looked at what the rental market brings back and how, like, if pitchers are going to be traded, they tend to be traded around this time with either one and a half years or two to two and a half years left to control. And if the deal's right, and this is a case, too, where just, like, a new front office would help put things in, like, a more open-minded context. You know, if if Rick Hahn makes that trade, like, oh, great, rebuild happened all over again. You proved you already couldn't do it. Uh, I'm waiting for the bears or just losing my interest in baseball or something. Uh, that That's why it's frustrating to just have the same front office doing the things over and over again is because like, if like the white Sox equivalent of Scott Harris came in, James click, or, you know, somebody of his ilk came in and said like, yeah, you know, I, I'm looking at our team and our best move is training Dylan Cease and really trying to build up our talent base for 2025. Like fans would say, okay, See what you got. <laughs> See what your talent evaluators have. See what uh-huh. your ability to, you know, navigate trade markets and free agent markets and buy low. Uh, there would be an open mind. Like, nobody would be excited about it. But fans would at least be like, yeah, I get it. You know, the the, the front of the rebuild wasn't the problem. <laughs> Everything that happened afterwards. Finishing the team was the problem. So, yeah. You know, like, having a new uh, front office in there that we could actually, like, maybe see it through would... I think it wouldn't provide a whole lot of energy, but I think it would like make it a lot easier to just maintain your belief that like somebody somewhere might have an idea of how to fix this. But the front office doesn't, the the new front office doesn't exist unless something drastically Mm -hmm. changes on Monday. So I could see where people would be like, yeah, Josh, you're right. They could get the most out of Dylan Cease to trading him now. But back to what we just talked about. Rick Hahn's got a 5% approval rating. No one trusts Rick Hahn to handle that type of trade. Yeah. And thus, this is where we're at right now in analyzing what the White Sox should do when you don't trust the guy who's in charge of making these deals. Yeah, although the rebuild trades are probably his best work. So selling a pitcher at maybe the height of his value or the near height of his value might be one thing I trust him to do. Either way, not good. I get that point of view, but that would be openly admitting my plan has completely failed. Mm-hmm. Informing Which Jerry Reinsdorf that the plan has completely failed and getting everyone on board that we're not only punting the rest of this season, but we are punting 2024. Yeah. That I could understand that being a very hard sale. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no. I, I don't think but, it'll happen for, for those reasons, but like it is something to just be open-minded about just because a different GM might say like, yeah, that's our best way to shift Get out of this. the fundamentals of our talent by 2025. 
Well, before we wrap up this podcast episode, I guess we should talk about this upcoming series between the Chicago White Sox and Chicago Cubs. In the past, there's been more excitement about these games, but there's just no buzz in the city of Chicago for this series. The Cubs have been playing better baseball. They're 48-51 and on the season. They have won three straight games, but... They're six and a half games back still in the National League Central. They are five and a half games back of the wild card. So it's hard to say if the Cubs are still in contention for the postseason, but they haven't quit yet. They haven't moved anyone yet. In their last 10 games, they're six and four. This is what is surprising to me. And I don't know about the future status of David Ross as the manager of the Chicago Cubs. When you look at expected win-loss record for the Chicago Cubs, and you can look this up on MLB.com slash standings. The expected win-loss record for the Cubs is 54-45. and 45. They're the only team in the National League Central that has a positive run differential. Meaning the Chicago Cubs are underachieving by six games. And they should be the ones leading the National League Central. Not Milwaukee and Cincinnati. So I think that's going to be under a lot of scrutiny if this continues. Especially the Cubs don't do a lot of selling before the deadline. If they decide to stay in this race, if the Cubs sweep the White Sox and get to 50 and 51, that may make the t- uh, decision making tougher for general manager Jed Hoyer, of the Chicago Cubs. Your pitching problems for this series Tuesday night at 7:10 p.m. Central Time. It's Kyle Hendricks for the Cubs against Michael Kopech, and on Wednesday, let's see if either of these guys are still with the team. At 7:10, it's Marcus Stroman for the Chicago Cubs against Lance Lynn. And I mentioned no buzz coming into this series, Jim. We've talked about it over the years where the White Sox and Cubs play. It is supposed to be fun. It's both there in the same city. Cubs and White Sox fans have been at each other's throats over the decades. But this year, with neither team above 500 and both teams several steps behind in the postseason race, I just feel like Cubs and White Sox fans would just look at each other and shrug and be like, yeah, it's been that type of season. Yeah, the the I think the Cubs have the higher ground and saying like, yeah, there's just there's nothing there. Sorry guys, like there's you know pity is worse than uh, insults to me. Like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think what the White Sox can do is like maybe in this case like decide whether the Cubs are selling or not because they're kind of agonizing over it. It seems like with Stroman, with Bellinger trying to understand like, can we make a push because there are some signs that like this team isn't as bad as its record. Also the top of the central is uncertain. The Brewers are kind of iffy. Uh, the, the Reds run hot and cold, I think, as you might expect with a team like, you know, the precocious nature of their talent, like, they'll probably swing to some extremes and look like they're going to run away at the division and then they're going to lose six in a row. So uh, the Cubs have a path in, but they have to survive the trade deadline in like a dismantling at the trade deadline, which could make some sense for them. So I think if the White Sox can come in and like cool them off and interrupt their winning streak, then maybe it steers them in a direction that they don't want to go. Whereas like if the White Sox uh, act as like an, uh, accelerator like basically say like yeah here you go two more wins uh that could maybe change the math for the rest of the season so it's not that important of a series emotionally for fans but i think it could be a kind of a big one for the cubs because of just if this trade deadline doesn't get going until like the last couple days the cubs might need all the time possible to understand what they're doing yeah i mean they have a strong week here 
And like I said, if they sweep the White Sox, they guarantee Ray Field. That puts them at 50 of 51. They win another series over the weekend. They're back at 500 with just a couple of days before the trade deadline. If the Cubs get back to 500, does that change the calculus at Wrigley on, on what they do? Uh, I think there's a lot of teams that may prefer to have Marcus Stroman than Lucas Giolito. Teams are looking for outfield help, especially for bats. Cody Bellinger, I'm sure there's a lot of interest. But maybe the Cubs wait until Monday next week to make that decision. And that's a lot of work in like 24 hours that you have to pivot and try to move guys before the deadline. I'm not saying it's impossible. It's just a lot of work, probably sleepless night, texting and Zoom calling with other baseball front offices and trying to make deals done. But yeah, it's pretty clear. Like the White Sox, you have the green light, start making moves, hug watch, whatever. The Cubs here, maybe it's worthwhile being patient and you know standing pat for the next five days just to see and how things work out for them. And they have the resources to re-sign a Stroman. That's I think where they you do. know, like if they don't get any value back, you know, there is value in like proving they're serious, proving that you know a you know, half measure season, you know, having some standards for their manager, what have you, like making a push, like the Cubs will draw, the Cubs will get ratings, you know, at least, you know, if they're making a push. So I think there is economic value for them being in it versus just trading Stroman for anybody or Bellinger for anybody, knowing that they have the resources to resign them after the season. So like, I think their situation is a lot more compelling and a lot more interesting than what the White Sox are doing. Um, and yeah, I mean, if the White Sox deal them two losses and they fall at like eight and a half back, then I think eight was yeah, kind of the number I thought for the White Sox in terms of like where they had to be by the deadline or like, for me, is more like within six. But I think, you know, the Cubs, given that they have the run differential on their side that nobody has in their division, like there is some substance to the claim that like they can make a push. So that's why I think like, yeah, if they're within five or five and a half by the end of the you know, week, stay with it to me. Like, I'm not sure. Like, mm -hmm. I think the value of having a September is just the economic value for the Cubs dwarfs that of like Milwaukee and Cincinnati in terms of what they can put in next year's team. So go for it. Yeah. The Cubs are 15 and 12 uh, against the central this year. So that's just 27 games against central opponents. So if you play 13 games against all your division foes that's 52 division games so you still have 25 more division games left to go and you're six and a half back right now and you're five and a half back in the wild card like i think these next five days are going to be really critical for the chicago cubs like this series means a lot more to the cubs than it does to the chicago white Sox. and even if the white Sox were to sweep the Cubs, like, I, what does bragging rights do right now? Like, the season is so bad <laughs> for the White Sox. It'd just be, well, congratulations, the White Sox have also buried the Chicago Cubs. When does training camp start uh, for the Chicago Bears? That's how everybody <laughs> would feel if the White Sox were to sweep. But if the Cubs were to sweep, uh, then I think that there's still some faint hope left on the north side and what they do. And, of course, we'll be recapping that series on SoxMachine.com and, of course, on the podcast all week. And, but that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. And we'll let you guys know as far as the podcast schedule is. There's a lot of night games this upcoming week. And we are prepared to do some emergency podcasts when there are trades by the Chicago White Sox. So stick with us here 
over the next week, folks, as we are ready to cover on whatever moves are possibly made by the Chicago White Sox over the next eight days until the trade deadline. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. We upload every podcast episode into our YouTube channel, which you can watch at youtube.com slash Machine. And if you do watch our YouTube videos, please hit the subscribe button. We greatly appreciate it. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Socks Machine. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Socks Machine underscore Josh. Threads is a thing. So if you are on Threads, you can follow us there as well at Socks Machine and at Socks Machine underscore Josh. If you enjoy our work and want more, you can get more by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Socks Machine, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content and free versions of both the podcast and website. And whenever we have new Socks Machine swag, like the I Heart Wild Pitch Offense, they're the first ones to receive it. Monthly plans start at $2, or you can save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com. You're over all of the Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.